It is that time of year again here at the Leukemia Foundation to talk about the world's greatest shave. The world's greatest shave is one of the country's longest running and most iconic fundraising campaigns, bringing Australians together to champion a good cause for over 25 years. Every year, each March, a community of trailblazers step up to shave, cut or colour their hair, all in the name of funding game-changing blood cancer support and research. Every dollar you will raise will help keep families together when they need it the most. We'll provide practical and emotional support services to patients and their families. We'll help fund cutting-edge research and campaign for change for those affected. We'll help families meet basic costs like putting food on the table, getting to hospital or paying bills. You will join a community of trailblazers determined to shape a brighter future for blood cancer patients and their families. A community that champions change, that doesn't take no for an answer. So why don't you sign up to the Leukemia Foundation's World's Greatest Shave and shave, cut or colour your hair in support of Australians facing blood cancer. Every dollar you will raise will help provide support services to patients and families and keep them together. Hi, and welcome to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast, Talking Blood Cancer. My name is Kate Arkadiff, and my role at the Leukemia Foundation is a blood cancer support coordinator. We provide emotional and practical support to people living with blood cancer and their loved ones. Our support is offered throughout the many different stages of a blood cancer journey. While listening to this podcast, we will share the stories of people we have connected with who have faced blood cancer so that you, our listeners, can gain insight, find purpose and take inspiration. The Leukemia Foundation acknowledges the traditional owners of the country throughout Australia and recognises their continuing connection to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This story may contain content that some listeners may find difficult and challenging. We encourage anyone listening to take care of their own mental health and well-being. The purpose of this podcast is to share the real-life stories of people living with a blood cancer, and any discussion of medical treatments is not an endorsement. We encourage you to seek the advice from your treatment team if you have any questions regarding your diagnosis, side effects, or treatment. If you would like to talk to someone, or even if you would like more information on our services or on today's episode, please feel free to contact 1-800-620-420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. So let's get into today's episode. Today, we are joined by the wonderful Timothy James Bowen. You may recognise his name because in 2020, he was a contestant on the Channel 9's hit TV show, The Voice. Timothy grew up on the south coast of New South Wales, and during his early 20s, he was working hard and building a career as a musician. When he wasn't touring overseas, he was in the recording studio or flying up to Byron Bay, where his girlfriend and now wife lived at the time. Timothy, he was tired, he was sore, but he put that down to his busy lifestyle. However, little did he know, his world was about to be turned upside down and he was going to be handed the diagnosis of stage 4 lymphoma. Mary Ann Scapara speaks to Timothy about his incredible journey and what it was like to be diagnosed with a blood cancer. So welcome, Timothy James. So lovely that you were able to give us some time here this morning. How are you? Oh, I'm good. Thank you, Marianne. Nice to see you and and just be here. Thank you for having me. So in regards to your blood cancer journey, Timothy, are you able to tell us a little bit about what was happening in your life around the time when you were diagnosed and what year did you receive your diagnosis? Yeah, sure. So um, I am a musician. Uh, and I've been a musician for 
really my whole life. Um, and when at the time of my diagnosis, which was back in 2015, uh, I was still what I, I kind of um, refer to as, as one of the biggest peaks in, in my career. Uh, I was 25 and really just working really hard at that point. Uh, at making music work. Um, I was traveling to the United States four or five times a year to go to Nashville. Um, I was in studios uh, recording songs and writing songs and really I was the busiest that I've ever been. Um, and so that was um, that was kind of the situation at that point where I was so, so busy uh, with life and, and with music that it really um, – I think it's something that I uh, I think covered it's up. Passion, yeah. It was my it was my passion, um, but it, it it seemed to take first place over a lot of other things in my life, including my own body and and listening to my own body during that time. So you mentioned you went to Nashville a lot. What made you travel over there? Are you able to give insight to that, or yeah, so- why Nashville? <laughs> so my sister Claire Bowen is a um, famous actor, and she uh, was living. She still is living in Nashville, um, but really moved over there a couple of years ago for a TV show called Nashville. And she was one of the lead characters on the show. Um, she was living there at that time, and really Nashville is the the mecca for musicians around the world that are kind of into Western, uh, like Western uh, contemporary and country music. Um, and so for me, it, it felt like a, a second home. Um, really, I was traveling over there so often because my uh, dad is a flight attendant or he just retired this year. Um, so that kind of gave me a great opportunity to go over there at the drop of a hat and at every opportunity that I could to really just go and play How music lucky. and, you know, be in it. Um, it was just such a privilege. And you're very close to your sister? Yeah, yeah. You're so very- we've, <laughs> we've, been, we've been very close for a long time um, and it's it's a really, um, it, it's, it's a beautiful thing to have that kind of relationship with you simply. Oh, it's very lucky, very lucky. So you mentioned that you were travelling a lot, you were immersed in your music and you were, you know, not giving attention to your body and what, what it was telling you. So what changed to um, that led you to the doctor to receive that diagnosis? What happened? What yeah. was the, the final straw, so to speak? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it was something that built up. The, the reason why I say, like, I don't think I was really listening to my body over that time um, is that I was so so worn out from touring. Mm. Um, at that stage, my wife now, girlfriend then, um, she was starting to become a doctor and she was living up in Byron Bay. Um, so I was... You know, most weeks I was spending two or three days in Byron Bay, flying back to Sydney and doing either shows on the weekend or flying to Melbourne or Adelaide and, and doing studio sessions there or gigs on tour. So, wow. it was um, a lot of time running for flights, running for trains, driving everywhere, sitting in studios, and I have terrible posture at the best of times. So, for me, <laughs> um, I started to feel, you know, tired. Um, and and sore, which I put down to terrible posture and hard work. <laughs> yes, um, absolutely, and exhaustion. Yeah, and so mm. basically I think, I don't know whether there was, oh, well, there, there was. There was a, a, a last draw moment. Um, so when was it one of the last times that I travelled up to visit Christina, I was going up there to visit her for a final, um, I guess it was like a Christmas party for her practice that she was working with up north. And I remember getting off a bus that I'd just been on for the last two hours from, um, I think, Brisbane Airport. And I remember feeling really tired and really sore. And I was walking across the road in Byron Bay and I was definitely feeling everything, but it hadn't really come to a head at that point just yet. And I got, I remember getting halfway across the road and um, I think I, I sneezed and it was just a, a pretty innocent, you know, action of sneezing when you're walking across the road. But 
it hurt so much that it made me fall over. Um, oh. And I remember sneezing and just being on the floor um, and being in so much pain that it, it made me fall over, um, which was obviously really surprising. Um, it took took Christina by surprise. Um, yes. And there were a couple of people that came off the side of the road to help me get up in the middle of this pedestrian crossing and get me off the road and onto the other side. Um, but that was, I think that was the first real um, serious marker that that I think said to me that maybe there's something more wrong than just being super tired. Yeah. So from that fall, did you then seek um, medical advice or did you just um, wait till you got back to home or what happened then? Yeah. So, I mean, before that, Christina had noticed a few things that weren't quite right. Um, I think she had that medical lens. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is a blessing and a curse in a lot of ways. Um, Yeah. But I think she just saw the situation as something's not quite right. You're, you know, much more tired than you are usually. Um, I think I was having night sweats, but it was also this mix of like, oh, you're really tired and it's Byron Bay and it's a little hot and it's different from New South Wales. So maybe it's just the acclimatization aspect of that. So there are all these excuses that came up for that. Um, But from that point on, I think it became pretty clear that there was something more to the story. And even though we'd kind of had conversations with the doctor about getting blood tests and things, there wasn't any urgency to it. Um, at that point, um, immediately after that, because I was in so much pain, we ended up going to a GP and getting um, just some painkillers to get through the day and then made an appointment, uh, I think, for the either later that week or, or the, the following week after that at my regular GP to get some blood tests uh, properly done and, and some proper investigation kind of started. Yeah. Um, but there was nothing in my mind, could have been in Christina's mind, but there was nothing in my mind that really said, hey, you might have cancer. Mm. Well, I don't think anybody really um, looks at that as an option. I think no. all of the things that you've shared and what you, you know, you could weigh up what has contributed to your day-to-day back then, the travel, the extensive travel, the busy, you know, you attributed it to a lot of other things and no one goes to cancer. You're quite right. No one. No, thinks, especially not especially not at 25. You're, you're kind of no. on top of the world and you're... Um, invincible. Yeah, you're invincible. Exactly. <laughs> so the GP diagnosed you with what condition? Um, so do you mean the overall diagnosis? Yes. Eventually. So, um, yeah, basically it, it was a, a couple of weeks of really, um, trying to, to work out what was going on. Um, the GP had the blood test results back and, um, really just said, something's not right. I, I can't remember exactly what the, the name of the marker is in the blood that lets you know that something's wrong. But the way that she described it was like, there's a, it's a fire alarm and basic, there's a fire alarm going off in your system, but we don't know where the fire is. Um, oh. And so it was a, a bit of back and forth between the GP and us trying to figure out what was wrong. Um, that would have been quite an anxious time, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. It was, oh. it was really, um, I think it was also a bit of a uh, a haze in a lot of ways because mm. at the same time we were moving back down the coast from Byron to uh, back to Wollongong where we were living. And um, so we were moving all of Christina's things, you know, 10 hours south and, and driving that distance to try and get everyone back for Christmas. Um, so it was right, right before Christmas, 17th of wow. December, 2015. A date you'll never forget. I will never forget that day. Um, no. And one of the one of the interesting things, the day that I actually found out and had the diagnosis um, kind of told to me, uh, we do this really funny thing as a family of musicians. Everyone can play something or sing or, you know, hit a triangle or whatever. Um, so we have a, a family Christmas album that we put together every year, which is, 
it's everyone gets into a room and just sings Christmas carols. How um, lovely. Is that for public listening? No, no, it's just for sort of the grandparents and, and parents of the family. Oh, it's how something special like, is that? Yeah, it's a really lovely. Yeah, mm. it's a really lovely Connection. gesture. Yeah, to mm. be able to, you know, even if you can't get someone a physical gift that year, then you can sing a song and or you could sing a song with them and have a really, you know, really beautiful time. So much more meaning in yeah. that kind of moment. Absolutely. Oh, that's just, oh, I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so every year we record this thing and, and it just mm-hmm. turned out that um, this one day was the day that everyone could get together. So I was busy. I'm sort of usually in charge of setting up all of the technical requirements for everything and getting microphones set up and computers ready and, you know, making sure that the space is good for it. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I was busy doing that and we were probably about half an hour off everyone turning up. And so Christine is cooking things upstairs and I'm setting up microphones and I got this call from the, um, from the medical practice saying, Hey, um, you need to come up to the medical practice right now. And I was like, it's six o'clock in the evening. Like, oh, what? We've got an album to make. We've got an album to make. We've got the musicians are coming. <laughs> um, and so I, it was just a really confusing phone call because it was very cryptic because um, they obviously didn't want to say anything over the phone, but they just said it's really important. You have to come up here. Um, and we lived two minutes from the medical practice at that point, so it wasn't too much of a problem. So we we're like. I, Okay, well, we got to go. We got to go. So, called Christina and um, we ran up the road and mm. just said to our friends that had literally just pulled into the driveway at that point, just hang tight. Um, we'll be back in a second. We've just got to go and deal with something. And we went up the street, and my regular doctor wasn't on that day. So, we actually had someone that I hadn't met before. Um, and they invited us into the room and they were like, we're really, really sorry, but we we don't really have an easy way to deliver this news. There's no easy way to deliver this news, but we think that you've either got testicular cancer or lymphoma. And wow. there was just this. Surreal. It's this like silence that just, it's like a blanket that just falls over the whole room. That's just mm. like, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, my, my default is to kind of laugh at anything regardless of what the news is because it's just been an instinct of mine for, <laughs> for as long as I can remember. Um, and so, I, I, I can't even remember what I did in that moment. It was just this blanket of um, silence that fell over the room and that like white noise kind of thing. Mm, mm, um, Christina, I think, went into doctor mode and, and fix it mode, mode and was just like, all right, what do we what do we do? Like Next where steps. do we go from here? Mm. Um and so he kind of outlined a plan over uh, outlined a plan over the next um really week because it was a week before Christmas. Um and his his whole thing was that everything's going to close in about a week, so we have to really move fast to try and get any tests done that we need done now. Um, so it, it sort of went from, oh, there could be something wrong, but we don't really know what the problem is, but you're just a bit tired and it could be this and it could be that, to you need to go in tomorrow and get wow. you know everything done that you need to get done immediately. Um so and going was, tomorrow, I would imagine, was a bit of a distance from where you were living. No, actually, back then it, it no? wasn't. We were um, so we were okay. in the northern suburbs of Wollongong in a place called okay. Bulwai. Um, yes. And so I got like all of my treatment was done in Wollongong, and it was oh, world world class. Like I Lovely. cannot speak highly enough of the team in Wollongong and the cancer care center that they have there. It was just incredible, um, but. As well, lucky for that, is a massive regional centre. Um, mm. So, we were 15 minutes away from every test that we could possibly need. Um, but we just had to get it done before Christmas because everything was mm. going to shut down for That's two quite- weeks after that. <laughs> what a surreal time. 
Oh, and adding to that, when we walked outside, um, <laughs> coincidentally enough, because everyone was turning up for the Christmas album, the- I remember walking outside and we had uh, Christina's sister, who's also a doctor. Um, she's a pediatrician at Westmead Kids. Basically, she was at, she was just happened to be outside the medical practice for some reason, um, dri- driving past. So she turned around. She was really excited, and she's like one of the most um, beautifully bubbly, effervescent, mm. just incredible Vivacious. personalities. Yeah, just mm. incredible personalities that you can meet. She kind of like her whole. But Christina's whole family lights up the room whenever anyone walks in. How it. beautiful! <laughs> Which is but, possibly the ingredient that surrounded you in that moment. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But basically walked outside and Kate was right there and she was so excited and she was like, what are you guys doing up here? And I was like, uh, I don't know how to say this. And Christina just handed her the piece of paper that the doctor had given to us and she was like, no, and immediately, you know, sucked the air out of the situation mm-hmm. by one single piece of paper. Um, but from that point, <laughs> we went to leave and then uh, it, w- it was almost like comical how many people turned up at the one time because Kate was there. She got uh-huh. delivered the news and immediately was like in battle station mode. Mm. And then, you know, next up around the corner comes Christina's dad, Christina's mum, Christina's other two younger sisters and their family dog in the ute. <laughs> <laughs> wow, how was that for you? Were you were you okay in that moment or did you want some space or I can't even begin to imagine Timothy what that would be like. No, it's um I honestly can't even remember. I think I think it was just my body kind of went into a survival mode, I I guess you would call it. It it wasn't um it it wasn't particularly overwhelming. It wasn't um, something that I didn't want to happen because, I mean, these are all people that I love and care about. So, it's, you know, they'd have to find out eventually. I think it was just a bit harsh that they had to find out five minutes after we got the news. Um, so, I think it's I was funny. in a state of shock, really. You would have been, as, as Christina would have been as well, mm. and the entire family. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, especially coming from a situation where like that, that night is usually, you know, you start at six o'clock after everyone finishes work and it'll go until two o'clock in the morning when Christina's brother Phil will turn up and play trumpet after he's been out for the night partying. And it, it's it's like it's a wild it's a wild night that just kind of like goes forever and it's full of joy and music and just fun. Um and so to be juxtaposed against this like the worst news that you could ever get Ooh. on a day like that. And, yeah, so very, very weird. Surreal. Very, strange, very, very surreal. surreal situation. So how did you spend that night? Did you play music? Did the family stay or did they just, you know, get, just did they disperse or how, how was that night spent in that, you no. know? Yeah, so we um, we delivered the news to them and then immediately sucked the air out of the situation again. Um, and went back down to the house, and then we had to tell everyone that had just turned up what had happened. Mm. So there was there was a crew of like twenty people there that that kind of didn't wow. know what was happening and what to do. Mm. Um, so we, I, I I don't think anyone really felt like playing music after that point because it mm. felt so strange. Um, so we all just well, almost we, I like think, disrespectful. Yeah, yeah. It felt mm. like it was kind of treading somewhere where you where you shouldn't you just shouldn't be. Um, mm. And so I we basically just said, "Hey, look, do you want to just go and get get something to eat?" And so we all went to this little Thai restaurant in Thirul, um, which is about five minutes north of where we were, and just didn't talk about it. <laughs> Everyone yeah. just well, I guess sat down and. In- what do you say, you know? It, um, um, because at that point, you well, it was one way or the other, wasn't it? You hadn't had the array of tests at that yeah, point. Were, it was either testicular or lymphoma. Yeah, they were basically just like, 
you have something. We don't know what it is. Um, yeah. We'll figure that out tomorrow. So in the meantime, just hang tight. And um, yeah, so we wow. went. Yeah, we basically just went went and ate food. Um, my mum and dad hadn't they they weren't coming up for the Christmas album that night. So I had to call. I called dad first um, mm-hmm. and told him. Um, he he tends to have a slightly higher coping mechanism for emotional situations where it's, you know, highly volatile. And mum, I think, takes things, you know, very, very hard most of mm-hmm. the time. Um, and it's just a difference in personality that's just it is, <laughs> yeah, and it's male and female. It's yeah, and it's, you know, it's, uh, it's mum. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's mum. Um, and, you know, regardless of height and age and being married and a big grown man, you're still her baby boy. Absolutely. absolutely. And same as for your father. <laughs> yeah. Even though he is stoic, um, he, you're still his boy. Yeah. So, and but uh, uh, unfortunately, my uh, my whole family has been blessed with a, a, <laughs> a type of ESP, or <laughs> like knowing oh, exactly okay. what's going on at the same time. So, I called Dad, and he was like, "Uh, doesn't feel like you're giving me a call about something good here." And I was like, "I'm not. Um, I need you to just hold off telling Mum for a minute, but this is what's happened. We'll come down and and tell you in person." And then I think the look on his face told Mum that something wasn't right, and I think she kind of went in the same direction because she'd been seeing all of the signs in me over the last, you know, couple of weeks of losing weight and being super tired and all of these things that lined up with her experience with my sister when she was younger um, and who had cancer when she was about four years old um, and completely unrelated. She had uh, nephroblastoma um, as a four-year-old and so – for mum, so I think been, her radar. Had, yeah, it would have been. Yeah, yeah, her radar was going off like crazy. Um, so I think as soon as Dad got a phone call that he couldn't talk about, she was kind of onto it. Um, mm-hmm. And later that evening, after we'd finished eating, I went down and and kind of had a conversation with them, and then we decided to call Claire. And when I called Claire, it was. Oh, I think it would have been, you know, three or four o'clock in the morning Nashville time. And oh. she answered the phone as if she knew exactly what I was going to say, which, yeah, I don't know. I think I think just when you've got a family that are so close and care about each other the way that we do, they're just there. Oh, that's so, um, Yeah, they are just there. And that connection, um, you know, I'm sure being so far away, that would have been, that would have been quite devastating for Claire. Oh, yeah. Wanting to wanting to almost be with you, see see you, touch you, give you a hug. Yeah. So she um it kind of went to battle stations. She's older or younger? Well. Uh she's six years older. Six years older. Yeah. yeah. So do you remember oh no, you wouldn't six years older, you wouldn't remember her <laughs> being six at all. No, you no. weren't there. No, no. So she was four and I was uh, a twinkle. <laughs> a twinkle, you know, a twinkle in the eye. <laughs> um, and I guess and at four, she wouldn't hold a lot of memory of that time either because that's the beauty of being so young. They might have little memories. I don't know. Yeah, um, you'd, you, well, you'd hope so. But I, I think for Claire, she, she has remembered quite a lot. Um, has she? Oh. Yeah, so she she has she might be pretty a very spiritual person. Yeah, yeah, she's. Mm. Um, I think she holds quite a lot of memory from that time that I think is both uh, patchy and also clear as day. Uh, I like anyone's experience mm-hmm. that goes through it, and I think she's. You know, same thing. It's a bit of a blessing and a curse to be remembering those times, mm. but I, I prefer to look at it as a blessing. Absolutely. To be honest with you, Timothy, the number of people I've been with the Leukemia Foundation for 25 years and people that I met 25 years ago who I'm still in contact with, it's fascinating that they actually do say to me that it's a blessing 
because mm. it gives them a richer life and their perspective on life is a, is so much richer for having had that experience. And I, they're, they're my greatest lessons in life is meeting people like yourself because, you know, you teach me so much about um, embracing the moment or following a dream or actually just embracing life and getting up and doing it. Whilst I can, why not? That's mm. something that, that I see as a common denominator in a lot of people who've um, faced treatment and are moving on and moving forward. But in yeah. saying that, I'm sure there's some times where you might reflect and, and see things differently. Um, do you want to share with the listeners how that treatment time was for you and, and what was it that you what was it that you personally drew on to get you through um, your treatment period? So I was diagnosed eventually um, mm-hmm. with primary mediastinal, primary mediastinal large B-cell lymphoma was, I think, the full full term for it, which I'm still getting my mouth around. Um, yes. <laughs> but <laughs> that, that diagnosis really came after probably four or five days of, of proper investigation after the 17th happened. Um, mm-hmm. And it, w- it was a very interesting time where I had actively avoided the doctor and avoided hospital for years before that. Um, just, I think, because when we were little, we didn't really go to the doctor very much. I think my mum had some really uncomfortable situations with doctors when she was with uh, Claire and caring for her when she was ill. Um, and I think that developed a sense of distrust in the medical community because she did have such a a bad experience with a few doctors in particular. There were some doctors that were, um, you know, they would give the earth for you um, during Mm -hmm. that time. But I think the bad experiences that she did have they far outweighed anything else. Um, so for us as kids, we we weren't really ever sick, um, and so we <laughs> we just didn't go to the doctor very much unless we needed to be stitched up because we were swinging on <laughs> vines that we weren't supposed to be. Or <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, yeah, basically, we I, I actively avoided the doctor for a long time, and so by the time I got there, um, it wasn't just hey, we're going to take this little test. It was like, hey, we're going to go in for a bone biopsy and then we're going to go in for a PET scan and we're going to take pieces out of you. And um, that was terrifying, terrifying oh, for someone that is so overwhelming. But I think the the really, I guess, the common thread through everything was my family and particularly Christina being there and just being an absolute anchor. Um, such a rock during that during that time where everything was fluid, everything was just up in the air and we didn't know what was coming the next hour, let alone the next day. Um, mm-hmm. And really my family was held afloat by Christina in so many she different She was that ways. consistency, that ingredient that, you know, gave you that strength to face the moment. Yeah, and I think it I speaks – yeah. And I think it just speaks volumes of, I guess, her own um, her own abilities as a as a medical professional to really calm the situation and to take things at an objective face value and say, okay, well, this is what we know. We don't know anything else, so we can't really worry about it. So let's just focus on what we know and what we can fix and. We'll just take it step by step, which is the best way to get through it. And that's honestly a, a coping mechanism that I drew on for the rest of my treatment, which was just like, you can't, worry, <laughs> if you don't know what's coming, you can't really do anything to change it. So worrying about it's not really going to make much help. So just deal with what's in front of you and take it step by step. But how insightful, really, Timothy, that she used those words with that, that allowed you to diffuse those anxieties around looking, you know, looking forward and, and you know, the, the wait and worry or the, the watch and wait and how we can, as human beings, have a tendency, or not all, to, you know, to fan it larger than what it needs to be. How lucky that Christina was that rock, as you say, and that pivotal person who used the words of step by step and was that 
that just that calming um that calming person for you on a day-to-day basis that allowed you to just put one foot in front of the other except each day as as what it you know as what it presented and we go from there yeah and i i i count my lucky stars every single day that she was there um i know a lot of people that went through similar situations that um weren't as lucky and didn't have someone there that was as supportive or didn't just didn't have someone there to lean on um so i i feel so privileged that that both her and her family were there being a family of medical professionals um as they are it's the biggest privilege to have those people on your side at really the most challenging time of your entire life so for you as an individual you had that crew surrounding you which were was the you know um was a significant strength for you but for you as an individual what did you what did you draw on within did you throw yourself into music did you are you a meditator what were the things that you um that you drew on within yourself in those moments where you may have been in hospital or um some of the medications may have kept you up at night or you were on your own um do you want to share with the listen listeners what worked for you like yeah, what were the key so things I, that helped you? i um i find that i i kind of thrive not being stuck to the one thing for too long, <laughs> if okay. I can say that. Um, yep. So I've got many, many different outlets of, um, I guess, creative release for me. My my grandfather used to uh, do a lot of leather work, so I got really heavily into leather work. Um, I love music. Is that during treatment? Music. Yeah, yeah. So um, before treatment, it was more of a hobby of trying to figure out how to make things like wallets and belts and simple um, things that I could give as gifts to people. But particularly, um, yeah, but particularly during um, treatment, I guess. So as part of my treatment, I was on a a ridiculous regime of steroids, which. They uh, they were like you're going to be really hungry and you're going to be really busy when you're on and when you're asleep you're going to be asleep but when you're busy you're going to be busy until four o'clock in the morning Um, and so a lot of the time uh, I didn't paint a house I found a watch company though that I was going to make watches through and uh, I found you know the distribution warehouses in China and I was very productive. Didn't amount to anything. Wow. <laughs> you busied yourself but, well. Oh, I, yeah. I, I fancy myself as a little bit of an entrepreneur when I've got the means to do so. Um, and oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> basically I had – during these roid rages, as, as they're called, <laughs> I had grand visions of starting a, a, a leather company and then creating a watch company that was attached to that that I would then leverage and, and of course, distribute all over the world. Um, all these hilarious things that, that you go through. But um, basically, I, I kept myself busy, um, you know, doing hilarious things like that at 3 o'clock in the morning um, or – really making music um listening to a lot of music it, it it kind of varied throughout the treatment because there were different stages that uh really meant that i i i could or couldn't do certain things um there were times when i couldn't watch tv or videos or anything because i was um the chemotherapy made me really photosens- photosensitive so I it, it hurt to to watch anything. Mm. Um, mm. As a result of part of the treatment, which was a lumbar puncture that went in every three weeks to deliver methotrexate to the lining of my brain, um, they essentially said that you might get some kind of side effects from that. That uh, could be it can be described as like a postural headache. So. Okay. Um, if I was lying down, it would be fine, no problem. And this would only persist for about a week at the start of treatment. Um, Still, that's a long week. 
Yeah, at, at the start of each round, I should say. Um, mm. And, you know, I would be lying down and it would be totally fine, normal day. As soon as I would sit up or try and walk anywhere, it would be about a minute. And then after that minute would be the most incredibly splitting headache that you could ever imagine. Can't see, can't do anything. You just have to lie down again. And then within 30 seconds, the headache's gone. So, wow. It really was that, was that time depressing or that week knowing you had to surrender a week to get through that week by lying down? Was how, how, did, you, how did you cope during that time? Um, to be honest, it, it, it just felt like par for the course. Um, mm-hmm. I think for me, I'd, I'd resign myself to the fact that I couldn't do anything else and the drugs were doing what they were supposed to do. Um, I'm pretty good with my own company most of the time. So <laughs> I just thought, okay, you know, you've just got to trust the process and, and really um, find find things that can keep you happy in this time, whether th- whether that's just sleeping, whether that's um, listening to meditative music or um, eating whatever you feel like eating at that particular point in time because you've just got to do it. It's really just finding that, that, that makes that moment comfortable. I'm actually going to repeat that, Timothy, because I just think that's, you know, we, we look at gold nuggets for people and, and you know, a lot of people do struggle in those darker times, um, struggling with this steroid rage or what did you call it? You called ro- roid rage. <laughs> roid rage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, roid rage. Um, and even what you've described with the methotrexate and, and how you had to build around your coping in surrendering yourself to that moment. But mm. peacefully accepting that what I loved the use of the word that you used was trust, trust in the process. So mm. valuable and so strong for people to to listen to that, you know, having faith in your treatment team and faith in your treating specialist, but also trusting yourself that you're going to do as, you know, as what's suggested and recommended or even listening to your body and trusting the time will pass but this mm. is what I do need to do in the here and now. I actually think that's really valuable, a valuable message. So thank you for articulating that just so beautifully. Oh, you're welcome. I think the other thing that I, I found, um, it, it sort of felt a little bit cheesy that it came from a movie, but um, there was a, a film that I watched just recently. So not not the golden nugget of, you know, hand it over, but um, it, just in terms of this next thing that, that I'm about to say, there's a uh, a movie called Bridge of Spies. Um, it's got Tom Hanks in it. It's about a, a Cold War era um, kind of spy situation where a guy gets caught in the States um, as a Russian operative and he's essentially charged with treason and he's going to be put to death uh, or that's the, you know, the potential outcome of this situation. And Tom Hanks uh, plays a lawyer that essentially has taken on this unwinnable case against the US government and he doesn't know what to do, but he's going to do it anyway because, you know, he's got to take the job. Um, and he walks into the room and and this, this Russian operative uh, kind of has a bit of a nonchalant uh, demeanour about the whole situation and, and he's kind of not phased by any of the outcomes that, you know, he, he could die. He could be mm. put to death for treason. Um, and Tom Hanks just says, aren't you worried? Like, you, you could be put to death. You could, you could die in this moment. Like, wh- are you, aren't you worried? And the character just looks at Tom Hanks' character and says, well, would it help? And I was like, that is the best explanation is- for – any situation that I've come across in my life is like, if you worry about it, would it, would it help? <laughs> and how so simple. So would simple. it help? Would it so help? simple. Yeah. And so, that, so powerful. Oh, mm. It makes you stop in your tracks and go, oh. You're like, <laughs> no, it really no. is. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go and have an ice cream. You know, it's it's something. <laughs> it's something for me was such a, a huge, um, 
I guess, settling, settling aspect for, for a lot of the, the problems that I was going through. Um, mm-hmm. it, it just calmed everything down. It was like, well, yeah, I might die. Like very real. Like I, I could die, but I don't know whether that's going to happen and worrying about it's just going to make me more sick. So why worry about it if it's not going to help? And that, wow. you know, that doesn't work for everyone. Um, that's not something that everyone, everyone can kind of not. jump on board with. But I think but- part of part of handing it over um, for me was really just being like, well, the doctors are doing what they want to do um, and have to do. The drugs are doing what they're supposed to do. Everyone else is worrying about something through the day because I'm in the back room, can't get up because I've, you know, can't see if I stand up. So, <laughs> it's, you can't do anything. Like, <laughs> just lie down, let whatever's going to happen, happen, surrender to the situation and try not Trust to worry. Yeah. Would it help? Love that. So, moving <laughs> Moving forward now, I I believe you're celebrating your five years. Yeah, this, this year, I wow. can't believe that. That's gone like a flash. So, do you feel that you've changed, Timothy, over the five years, or how do you view life now? And you know, what are the things that you feel that um, that your experience through treatment has shaped you to look at life or? things that you do maybe a little bit differently? Yeah, I think I think particularly those last points of handing over situations that you have no control in, um, mm. that's had a huge effect on on the rest of my life. Um, I think I am, a, I am a different person now than I was five years ago. Like anyone in a normal situation would be, you change over time. Um, but I think I think now you uh, – I get less – worried about trivial things um i i get extremely frustrated with things that seem very very small and insignificant whether it's a uh-huh. a conversation with someone that doesn't quite go the way that it should or um you know the way that you want it to just in terms of um i guess having uh what's the right way to put this Having conversations with people that are surface, I, I I get quite frustrated with not being able to dive deep with people because I I guess the sense of urgency of time is different now. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So surface conversation and small talk feels uh, incredibly frustrating for me now, whereas before it was just part of part of the conversations, day. part of the day. Um, you know, you just, that's how you fill space. But for now it feels like filling space is a waste of part of the day that you could be doing something wonderful with. Um, Mm. so I think it, it has definitely made me value time more. Um, Mm. and in the same token, um, in the years afterwards that there was this big push and pull between, positive reactions to everything and negative reactions to everything. Um, particularly the, a good example that I've got of that is, uh, so Claire's, Claire's a musician as well as an actor and she has her own music and so she's been playing that all over the world for the last couple of years. Um, and she invited me at the start of treatment to come and support her, um, like be her supporting artists for the shows um and they were her first shows in australia since coming onto this tv show so we were playing metro theater and the corner hotel in melbourne and all these amazing venues that you kind of hold as as top shelf venues uh that you want to play as a musician and the experience was incredible um it was you know such such an amazing experience to go through at that time you know, let alone going through chemotherapy at the same time and being mm. <laughs> balls of oh, so, you, so you performed during yeah. treatment. Yeah. So how I was. Um, and how, what an emotional time for Claire, I would imagine, and you. Oh, it was. In that 
Oh, that connectedness. That's, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm a visual thinker, Timothy. My mind's going into the plate, <laughs> <laughs> the actor, the role play. Oh, yeah. So how, how powerful we, would that have been? Yeah, it was just incredible. And it was an amazing thing to be able to do. Uh, and I guess the reason why I, I say that my mind kind of flickered between so many different things uh, during treatment and so many things that could help me get through um, was that at, at different times, I obviously, like I said, I couldn't do certain things. So there was a time where I couldn't pick up a guitar and play because mm. my body wasn't strong enough. Um, there was a time, and I've still got videos of myself singing at that time where I couldn't sing um, because that my must have been heartbreaking. That must have been hard to look back at that oh, time. It's shocking. It's one of the mm. scariest moments that I've got because I've been able to sing since I was three. You know, since I could, mm. well, since I could speak. Basically, I was always singing because Claire was always singing. So I was copying everything that she was doing because she was the cool big sister. Um, <laughs> And, you know, I think so getting to a point where, you know, you're going through and you're, you're testing out all these things during treatment where you're like, oh, well, I could do leather work and maybe, you know, if my body can't, you know, sustain this journey, then at least I could find something else that gives me passion that my grandfather used to do that I could find a passion in and, and make leather work or, you know, I could create a bit of a legacy for our family if I could go off and make some magical watch company or whatever it was. Oh, I know. That, that, um, that was. That was a reach in the stars there. It was, it was a, definitely <laughs> a reach. <laughs> but I think – I like I think, it Yeah, but I think a lot of that, you know, underlying is this um, – this kind of dark undertone of like, well, if things go south and you can't sing anymore, or you, or you, the vincristine, you know, affects your nerves so much that you can't use your hands and you can't play guitar anymore. What are you going to do? Um, I mean, one thing in particular. So I had, I had this. I forgot to mention before. There's this. Um, basically, as part of the treatment, I had a take-home pack of chemotherapy for every round that I had. So. I think initially they were saying before they knew exactly what it was, they were like, oh, well, you know, you might be on a two-week regime where you're infused for an hour or two at the start of the two-week round and then, you know, you're just done in the cancer care center and then you go home and you deal with whatever um, symptoms you have to deal with and then you come back and it's just a two-week cycle. Um, but when they actually figured out what it was, uh they were like, so it's much worse than we anticipated. Um, mm. It's stage 4B, which is basically end of the road. Um, so we need to put you on, I think it was a 96-hour constant infusion of chemotherapy for every round. So I was basically hooked up to a chemotherapy take-home pump on a Monday, and then it was taken off my body on a Friday. Um, wow. So it's an over-the-shoulder bag. Yeah, yeah. So you basically like put it over your um, over your shoulder, and it hangs off you for a week, and it pumped into a, a port on my arm called a pick line, um, and basically it 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 just wasn't very comfortable to wear. <laughs> And, As clothing. You can imagine. and clothing was super awkward. And so for me, like I still wanted to feel like there was some sort of normalcy within life. And so Did you go to that bargaining place, Timothy, where you that bargaining place you go, Oh, okay, but at least I'm I'm out of hospital. I'm not an inpatient attached to a pole. Did you go there? Yeah. 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 I think I think I felt very lucky to be able to spend that mm. time at home. Um mm -hmm. but I guess for me, I still wanted to go to gigs and, and to, to be able to be, you know, present in those situations where I could be there, even though there were times where I was immunocompromised and I couldn't see anyone because um, any, any kind of cold would have knocked me out. Um, so basically, instead of walking around with this like horrible looking black plastic, you know, perspex covered bag that hung off me that looked like it was made in China and just was ugly and <laughs> kind of screamed cancer patient to anyone that was or like something's wrong with that person. Um, I 
<laughs> I took so my dad has a sh- uh, a leather satchel that he kind of carries around with him all day, and I took that bag and just looked at the way that it was made and basically called up the um, leather supplier that I used to go and get different hides from and just said, "Hey." I'm looking for something to make a bag um, and this is the kind of thing that I'm after and they found a hide that would work really well and they sent it to me and um, basically just cut all of the different pattern pieces out that I imagine that this bag would be made out of, um, stitched it together during one of my four o'clock in the morning roid rage sessions um, with my mum photographing everything and just being like, this guy's crazy, but it's wow. good. Um, it's great. It's great. And, yeah, and by the next morning um, I had a, a hip satchel for my chemo pump that didn't make it look like I was a cancer patient anymore. It just looked like I had a cool leather bag that I'd made. Um, How tremendous is that? Because it's so important when it's people so are going through treatment, it's so important to feel that normalcy, to feel like they, especially whilst they that 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 saying, "Whilst I can, I will." Yeah. You just embraced that to the next step. No, I'm not going to have this cancer-looking bag. I'm just going to step it up a bit and get something stylish and engage still in the things I want to do. I love it. You yeah. should get an outlet. So I, I ended up. <laughs> that's the plan eventually but music has to come first for now but <laughs> but um no i so i literally just made a belt and then made this bag that attached to the belt um so that i could have it on my hip because you, it has it's only got a certain length of line um and it's pumping all day so you you really have to kind of have it on your person all day um but yeah, basically just made a bag for it that made it fit perfectly in the bag and then it was a um it was just something that made me feel so much more confident in public where I I didn't feel like I was sick if that makes sense. Even though I was bald Absolutely. and you you know losing so much weight, it's something that you just feel like you've got a satchel on your hip and it's not um not as intrusive. How wonderful. And that's another golden nugget from you. You know, if you look at the physical person, the emotional person and how the two are entwined, you know, it it was important for you to maintain that physical presence of being engaged in the things that you loved that brought purpose to your life, that brought meaning to your life. So by hook or crook, you, you went about your business to ensure that you were going to do that in a way that presented yourself, that you kept your confidence in you i think mm. that's a really another powerful powerful message <laughs> good for you so moving on from there timothy you know you've given the listeners some some lovely things to take with them in your relationship with christina how do you feel the last 5 years have impacted on the two of you and your choices together as a couple and and your relationship Mm. Well, I so I suppose you know Christina and I have been together for eleven years now. Um, eleven years next week, actually. <laughs> oh, wow! Um, and I, we were friends first, um, and that I think is such a an important thing as as part of a relationship to form a friendship with someone. Um, you know, regardless of of the the romantic situation, being friends with them first is is I think for for us it's it's the most important. Um, and we kind of learned that we were pretty good with each other really early on. Um, mm. I think because of that friendship. So she, you know, when we first started going out, she went to live in Ireland for a year, and I followed her over there, and we figured out that we mm. could travel really well together, which is often a really good test of a relationship. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> if you could travel together, you're probably pretty good. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, when we got back, um, we were just kind of good. We were friends. Um, mm. You know, and and, and had a relationship, deeper. and it's and exactly, it's just grown deeper. And I think for both of us, like you do in any relationship, you you learn to 
I guess, understand the other person more and more the more time you spend with them and, and the more um, the more your relationship grows. Um, mm. Being put in this, you know, baptism of fire with all of this health stuff, it, it's an experience that I wouldn't wish on anyone, but I wouldn't take any of it back. Um, yeah, it's, it's yeah, something that's- that... I guess for us, it was such a formative part of our relationship where uh, I've I've known people who haven't been able to deal with that situation and be like, I don't know what to do. Whereas Christina knew what to do. She knew how to support our family. She knew how to support me. Um, She did everything that she could to support us. And yeah, it's just an incredible, incredible thing it. to be a part of, and you love them all for it. Exactly, it's yeah, a absolutely huge privilege so, to be in that situation with someone. Oh, very blessed. So, was she the subject material for any of the beautiful songs that you've created by chance? <laughs> I'd say probably ninety percent. Ninety percent. There's a lot Did of songs. Feel- there's a lot of songs written about Christina. Are there? Do you have a favourite yourself? A favourite? At the moment, my favourite is The Greatest Thing, which is the latest single that I released. Um, I actually wrote that for her uh, at our wedding. Um, it was a, a oh, song that I wrote. Yeah, I wrote it in in uh, in secret for about three months before our wedding um, and really tried to fine-tune it as much as I could because I wanted to play it to her at the end of my um, speech at our wedding. And so, and ended did up she getting cry? it done. She Tearing did up in it. <laughs> she did. Help. Uh, there are some very, very good photos of that that whole experience on the day. Um, I don't know how I got through it without crying, but I did. Um, very proud of myself for that. <laughs> very proud of yourself. Absolutely. And, you know, I think in those moments, Timothy, and even just even just the time that we've spent here this morning just chatting, the power of love, I think when you have that as your focus or when it is present in your life so strongly, there's a unique strength that we can draw on within and we can actually do anything. Absolutely. I completely agree. And and i think you've surrounded yourself with um enormous love choices that you've made f- you know with your family your mum your dad and that that lovely connection that you have there your sister who i think that's really not many siblings can say that um they're truly connected and that they're really strong but you mm. you know it sounds to me regardless of location you have a connectedness that that keeps you strong which is so valuable, and then your your life choice, you know, your partner Christina and her family. But how lovely! That's just truly blessed in life to have all have yourself surrounded by all of that. Yeah, it's a very very privileged situation to be in. Yay! Was there anything that we haven't shared that you know you you think is really poignant, or something that you feel is a really good message to people who may be newly diagnosed, or who you know might be you know starting their their treatment phase, or or they might be post treatment and and you know moving forward from treatment but struggling a little bit? Is there anything that you feel that would be key messages for those listeners? I think you've done a uh, fantastic job of pulling all of the uh, questions <laughs> and answers oh. out of me that that, <laughs> that I've been able to give. Um, I'm usually terrible with putting thoughts together, so it's really nice to be able to have a chat. Um, I think I think the biggest things to pull away from from all of my experience was really that I I couldn't control much other than the things that. You know, you obviously can control like your treatment. Uh-huh. Um, trying to be patient with as many people as you can. Um, patience is something that is is such a virtue in those situations, and being able to hand it over, like we said, and just be in the moments that you're in. Really, I think 
trusting in in people and your relationships is is such a such a hard thing to do, but it's such an important thing to do within those times. And finding finding things that give you joy, I is such an important thing. It's it's something that for me, I have so many different things that give me joy, whether it be poetry or singing or playing guitar or mm. making leather work or finding hilarious ideas on the internet to spend <laughs> three a.m. But um, you know, finding finding things that that really spark joy in your life and and to make whatever situation you're in just a little bit better. Um, if you can aim for a little bit better, then that's I think one of the best things that you can do because if you're a little bit better than you were two minutes ago, then you're winning and you're heading in the right direction. Exactly. Thank you for your time, Timothy James Bowman. It was lovely spending time with you this morning and having an insight into into you and who you are as a person with some lovely messages for people who are listening. Thank you so much for having me, Marianne. It's been an absolute treat. That brings us to the end of this episode today. We hope that you've found it helpful in some way. And if you would like more information on our services or today's episode, please feel free to call 1-800-620-420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Kate Arkadiff and you've been listening to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast, Talking Blood Cancer.